Hi, everybody. My name is Jerry J., and I am an alcoholic. Hi, Jerry. I want to thank you all for allowing me to be so feel so good and feel so welcome. It was a pleasure to, to walk on the grounds and, uh, and see everyone. Uh, thank you, Joe, for asking me to come over. Uh, you know, I, I say yes when I'm asked to do something in AA because I was told to when I first came in and got a sponsor. Uh, I love AA introductions, and that's, Brian, that's probably as good an introduction as I've ever heard. Uh, I think the one, the only one that I can imagine that's better than that is the fellow gets up and says, I've never seen this old boy before in my life. I don't know anything about him. If he has something to say, let's listen to him. If he don't, let's get it over with. <laughs> that's what happens when somebody jumps behind one of these podiums. And, you know, I've, I've found out since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous, all we do when we do this is take our turn. All we're doing is just taking our turn. And like I say, the first sponsor I had told me to say yes when I was asked to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous. And, Archie, I love you for saying yes. Thank you. Uh, and I immediately asked him, I said, well, what if I say yes to something I can't do? And he looked at me, and he either grinned or smirked. I never did figure out which it was. And he died before I ever pinned him down on it. But he said, Jerry, you do what you're asked to do, and God will either show you how or he'll get you out of it. And I've had both happen. I've been shown how, and I've been got out of it. <laughs> There's another, uh, several other reasons that I'm willing to say yes when I'm asked to do something in Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, one of them is that this same sponsor that I, that I asked to, to share with me when I came into AA, and I hope I get to, to share a little bit with y'all about him. He was such a, a prevalent part of my sobriety and an important thing in my life. Uh, when we started taking the steps, he told me, he says, uh, I want you to take this big book. He gave me a big book, and I immediately told him, well, I've got a big book. And he says, he immediately told me, well, you don't have this one. <laughs> and he said, I want you to read this big book, and I want you to, to read it when, where I tell you to, when I tell you to, and how I tell you to, and when you do, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. And he said, I don't want you reading anything else while we're doing this. But he said, I do want you to read the AA service manual. And I didn't even know what the AA service manual was, and he gave me one. And I, don't, I never have read the service manual. I started reading some of it and, uh, and just drifted away from it. But I read something in there that has become real important to me in my sobriety, and I believe it with all my heart. And it simply says something to the effect that Alcoholics Anonymous is more than just this set of principles that we're a society of alcoholics in action and that we must carry this message else we ourselves will wither and those who haven't been given this truth may die. And I believe that with all my heart. I believe if I'm not willing to do what I'm asked to do that I'll wither. And I truly believe that the alcoholics that don't find the truth that we know in Alcoholics Anonymous, I truly believe they die. And I... I know that this isn't the only place that they can find that truth, but I see more of them find that truth here than any other place that I'm aware of. And that's another reason that I'm willing to do what I do. I, I don't mind sharing my experience, strength, and hope from the podium, but what I really love doing in Alcoholics Anonymous is sitting down with one alcoholic and taking these steps like somebody took the time to take them with me as they're listed here on the wall and as they're described in the big book. And the thing that gives me the encouragement to do that is something that's in the third forward to the, 
the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and it talks about something to the effect that no matter how far we reach or how many members we get, at our core we'll always be simple and personal. And it goes on to explain that by saying something to the effect that each day somewhere in the world recovery begins when one alcoholic talks to another alcoholic sharing experience, strength, and hope. How much more personal can you get than that? And how much more simple can that be? So that's what I really love doing. I don't mind doing what I'm doing tonight, but what I really love doing is getting somebody and, and sitting down and taking these steps with them like somebody did with me. It made my life what it is today and allows me to be with y'all and not be scared to death and, and not be afraid to leave here by myself. And I was like that in most places I was before I found y'all. It's truly by the grace of God in this fellowship, in this program, that I hadn't had a drink since November the 13th, 1982, and I'm grateful for that. What I'm most thankful for is I hadn't had a drink in over 14 years, and the longest I've had to go without one is 24 hours. I'm still just doing it one day at a time. Y'all asked me when I got here, can you not drink for one day, and I didn't know whether I could or not. I said yes because it sounded like a good answer. <laughs> But let me tell you, I've, I've tried that, and I've done that for over 14 years, so I know that works. I have a friend over in Fort Worth that uh, goes to another group, but he and I share a lot together, and he says, you know, he knows that prayer works because he's been praying the same prayer for a certain period of time, 10 or 12 years, and it's been answered every day. And that prayer is what y'all, my, my sponsor told me to do, the first thing he told me to do when I asked him to share with me was, Jerry, I want you to ask God every morning to give you the strength and the courage and the knowledge not to take a drink today. And then don't pick it up and don't drink it. And then at night, thank him for it. That's the one single thing that I can remember doing in Alcoholics Anonymous. I think I have done that every single day since I was told to do that. You know, I guess it's important that we share the length of our sobriety with one another. I love for y'all to share the length of your sobriety with me because I like to know how long it's lasted in your life. If it's more, it gives me the, the hope that, that mine will last longer. And if it's less, it gives me the opportunity to reflect back on that certain period of my sobriety. And I can usually reflect back to, to whatever it was when you mention it. And I usually don't unless somebody mentions that to me. Uh, the other reason I think it's important for us to do that is that we have birthday nights. We celebrate birthdays, and, and I think that's the one of the greatest meetings I go to in Alcoholics Anonymous is birthdays. Everything's upbeat. There's a lot of family there. There's a lot of real inside sharing, and I love birthday nights. Uh, we share those things with one another, and, and it, it simply tells us how long we've been trying to apply some of these principles in our lives. It don't say whether we've taken the steps or not. It don't talk about whether... I go to how many meetings. It just gives us an idea of how long we've been trying to, to apply some of these principles in our life. And i love for you all to share that with me, and that's the reason I'm willing to share it with you. You know, what I would like to do this evening is basically what I've come to understand by reading the book of Alcoholics Anonymous that all the stories are in the big book for. And, and I didn't know this uh, for a long time. Uh, I, I just thought those stories were in there to where I could read them and relate to their drunkologues and see if they had anything that they did that I may have done. But I finally read that book long enough to find out that 
What I want to do is, while all those stories are in there, I want to tell you in my own language and from my own point of view how I've established a relationship with God. I want to give you a clear-cut idea of what has actually happened in my life. And it took me a long time to find that in the big book or realize that that's why those stories are in there. But you know, it was a, a real plus for me because when I read one of those stories now, that's what I look for. I look to see how did this person establish his relationship with God. And so far, everyone I've read, i found out that, that they tell us how they did that. They tell us exactly how they did that. You know, the, uh, the book of Alcoholics Anonymous... Uh, describes uh, all different kinds of people. In fact, I don't think that there's a person, anybody, I don't think anybody can read that book and not find a description of themselves. I know it describes an abnormal drinker, a serious drinker, a whoopee drinker, a hard drinker, a heavy drinker, a, a teetotaler, a non-alcoholic, a potential alcoholic, an alcoholic, actual alcoholic, average alcoholic, true alcoholic, real alcoholic, chronic alcoholic, alcoholic of the hopeless variety, and it describes more than that. <laughs> but I don't think you can read that book and not find a description of yourself. I truly believe that when I first started drinking that I was an abnormal drinker. And the reason I do is because the first time that I remember of getting drunk, and I'm not sure it's the first time I got drunk, but the first time I can remember getting drunk, I was in high school. Uh, my home group is the North 40 group over in Fort Worth, and I went to school four blocks from where that group is. I took my first drink four blocks from where that AA group is. Uh, I'm still right there. Now, I've made a pretty wide circle, but I came right back to talk. I came right back to where I started. I was in high school, and a friend of mine's parents were leaving for a weekend, and me and another, a couple of other buddies went over to his house, and we bought some beer, and I got drunk. And they told me I did some things that night that I really didn't think I did. Uh, I thought, well, I must have uh, gone to sleep, and, and they still wanted to stay up and party, and they made this stuff up, and, and I'm not sure whether I did it or not, but I... I found y'all, and I found out I very well could have. Uh, and the thing that I remember about that is that there were three other people there, and one of those people are dead, and two of them are still involved in my life. They, uh, One of them I worked with most of my adult life. In fact, his dad gave me the first real job I ever had uh, back when we were going to school. And he and I worked together most of our adult life. He just... Uh, uh, he retired this last year, so I don't see him every day, but I used to see him every day. And when I came to AA and got to reflecting back on my drinking career, I asked him one time, I said, do you remember when we went over to Walter's house and his parents were out of town and we bought some beer and got drunk? And he said, you know, Jerry, I, I don't. I don't remember that. I know we drank a lot in high school and had some fun. And Walter, the, the fellow's house that we were at, he's a... Uh, He's retired, too, from the road. I'm still working. I don't know what's wrong with me. But I do, too. Somebody asked me, well, when I turned 65, they said, uh, what, are you going to retire? And I said, no. He said, well, why not? And I said, listen, retirement don't have anything to do with age. Retirement's monetary. But I saw Walter after I found John, and I said, Walter, you remember the weekend your parents left town, and uh, we came over to your house and bought some beer and got drunk? And he says, no, I don't remember it. 
He said, I know we drank a lot in high school, but he said, I don't remember that. I want to tell you something. I remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday. We bought a case of Carling's Black Label beer. We set it on the dining room table. I had on a pair of striped overalls. I remember it vividly. I loved it. It was it was the highlight in my life up until that time. And I can say that because I hadn't met Patsy yet. But it was a highlight of my life. And you know what's so ironic is that Walter and Byron have never had a drinking problem. They don't remember and they never had a drinking problem. But I truly believe that... Uh, that I was an abnormal drinker. I drank abnormally when I started drinking, and I think I became a serious drinker pretty quick because I liked what happened. I liked what happened. I could do the things I wouldn't do when I wasn't drinking. Uh, I felt like I wanted to feel, and I thought it was a glorious happening in my life. And I started drinking, and I started. Be- I became a serious drinker. In fact, I drank so much I got kicked out of school a lot. I drank at every function we had and, and in between and sometimes uh, at lunchtime when we'd uh, go off of the school grounds. And I, I did some serious drinking when I was in high school. I met this beautiful little old red-headed, freckle-faced gal uh, right after I'd started drinking. And uh, and she, she was going to graduate, and I'd flunked, and I wasn't going to graduate. I'd been kicked out of school, and I wasn't going to graduate. And I didn't like the idea of her taking off to college and those old hair-legged college boys taking shots at her, so I talked her into marrying me. And I quit school and we got married. Uh, we just celebrated 47 years this last month of marriage. And, uh, and I used to say, and I still tell, that the way that happened was by the grace of God and Patsy not liking change. And it was by the grace of God. <laughs> the only thing that I contributed to that marriage for a long time was money and longevity. That's all. You know, that's the way that I, that's what I contributed. But I know today, and Patsy has since told me, said, Jerry, it is by the grace of God, but it's because I loved you. And I know today that's why. I wasn't physically abusive to her or my children. I abused them in every other way you can abuse a human being, but I wasn't physically abusive. Had something real nice happen this evening. I came in and I started talking to Mickey. And he asked me if I... He knew another fellow that went over to the North Party and started describing him to me and asked me if I knew him. And I said, yeah, Mickey, I know him. It's my son. (laughs) And uh, thank you for for asking me that. Uh, But what happened was that we had... uh, We got married and... uh, and I had gotten a job, and I'd been working after school part-time, and, and the way I got this part-time job with my friend's buddy, my dad uh, was a plumber, and uh, he always had at least a 100 head of hogs, and we slopped hogs. We picked up garbage all over Fort Worth, and we slopped hogs. My mother used to tell me, Jerry, don't tell anybody we slop hogs. Tell them we feed them. And I, <laughs> I said, Mama, I know what we feed them. <laughs> we slopped hogs. And one day I was telling my dad, I said, Daddy, I don't like slopping these hogs. 
And he looked me right straight in the eye and he said, well, get a job. <laughs> the next weekend I had a job. And incidentally, I'm still in the same business. I'm, I'm a long ways from where I was in, but I'm still in the same business. This friend of mine, this was in 1947, and this friend of mine's daddy just opened a plastic company right there close to where we lived, and I, I went up and went to work for him. I had no idea what I was doing or what I was getting into, but I'm still in that same industry today. And that's how I got in the plastics business. And somebody used to ask me, uh, it was real new. Nobody knew anything about it. And they'd ask me, how in the world did you ever get in the plastics business? And I'd say, slopping hogs. <laughs> that's, a, that's the only answer I knew for them. Was that's, that's exactly what happened. But Patsy and I got married, and I went to work full-time. I quit school, went to work full-time. And this was in 1950. And... Uh, in 1950, uh, what happens when you got married, you had kids. Uh, we didn't have all the, the pleasures that y'all have today and, and facilities not to have kids. And what we had, we didn't like, we didn't use, and Patsy got pregnant. <laughs> and here I was, 18 years old. I'd quit school. I'd got a full-time job. I'd have got married, and now I'm going to be a daddy. And, man, I got scared. I'd got, I've got in some real fear. Well, I thought, if I can just back off a little bit and get away from this a little and not make too much of a fuss, I can gather myself back together and, and get, get back to doing what I ought to be doing. So I became patriotic. The Korean War was going on, and I became patriotic and uh, told everybody I was probably going to get drafted, and I have no idea whether I was going to get drafted or not, but I joined the Navy. I joined the U.S. Navy. Uh, I spent 10, uh, ten years... I spent three years, ten days, uh, two months and ten days in the U.S. Navy. I fought the whole Korean War on the French Riviera. <laughs> they put me on a little old ship, a little old gasoline tanker, and we went to work for the Air Force, and we hauled out gas and jet fuel for the Air Force over in the Mediterranean nine months out of every year. We'd go over there and do that and then come back. And the reason I talk about that is because that's where my drinking really accelerated. Uh, I loved, uh, I loved the situation I was in at that time. I didn't like it for very long, but at that time because I thought, well, I'm going to take care of my responsibilities at home. I'm going to get a breather here to get myself together. And, uh, and what I really got on to was we would leave Norfolk, Virginia, and when we got three miles out to sea, they'd open up the ship store and we could buy cigarettes and whatever we needed. And I could buy a carton of cigarettes in 1950. I could buy a carton of cigarettes, they called them C-stores, for 50 cents a carton. And we could get to Casablanca 14 days later, and I could get a fifth of cognac for a pack of cigarettes. So I didn't have any trouble finding me something to drink while I was in the service. I was on this ship, and, and uh, we worked for the Air Force, and I was a gunner's mate, and the ship's complement called for seven gunner's mates, and I was the seventh gunner's mate on that ship. When I went aboard, they had six, so I made the seventh, and we didn't have but four guns. <laughs> so we didn't have very much to do. And that's where my drinking really did accelerate. It really did accelerate because I drank that the whole time I was in the service. 
didn't get in any trouble doing it because we didn't operate with the fleet. We operated individually. When we'd pull into a port, one night I would have the duty and I would be the shore patrol and I'd go over and the bu- my buddies would get in trouble and, and we'd just go get them from wherever they were, the local police station or what, and take them back to the ship. And the next day we'd pull out and that was it. The next night one of my buddies would be the, the police or the shore patrol and I'd get in trouble and they'd come get me. So we just took care of one another. So I didn't have any problems with that. But I stayed in the Navy and I got out of the Navy and I came back home and went over in Fort Worth and went back to work at this place that, uh, that I'd been working at. And I worked there for 16 years. And, uh, and we, the two principals in that company and myself drank that company broke. We just drank it down the tube after 16 years. I loved working there. I went back to school. <laughs> I could drink like I wanted to, and when I first went back to work there, they ran three shifts, and I could work any sh- night shift and drink, and they didn't care. And I went back to school, and over that period of time, I became secretary and treasurer of that company, and uh, and I could just go drink like I wanted to, and and we we drank that company away. And I thought, well, this plastic industry is puny. I, here I put 16 years in it, and, uh, and it fell out from under me. Never once did I dream what I was doing had anything to do with it. So I decided I was going to change professions, so I went to work for a wholesale liquor dealer. <laughs> Sounded like a good idea to me. Uh, and I loved that. Uh, we'd get in a, a carload of beer, and they'd unload it, and we'd go out and, and uh, stack what we wanted in the middle of the warehouse, and the railroad inspector would come over and put what he wanted on top of it, and he'd say, that's damaged freight, and we'd take it home. I'd go in the bottle room where they made up all the different cases and pick up a bottle of whatever I wanted, and I'd tell whoever was in there, I just broke this bottle. And they'd write that down, and I'd take it home. Uh, I did that for a year, and Patsy decided that wasn't a good place for me to work. (laughs) She found me a job out in California. There was a, they ran an ad in the paper and needed a manager for a company out there, a, a plastic company. And, uh, you know, this was in the early 60s. We were in California when President Kennedy got killed here in Dallas. So it was in the early 60s, and the plastics industry was just really starting to thrive. And uh, they, didn't, they needed somebody, and I happened to be available and, and had more experience than most people did. So they hired me, and we went to California. You know what I loved about California? I could walk in and order a drink at a bar, and they would mix the drink for me and serve it to me. Let me tell you, in the early 60s, you couldn't do that here in Texas. You had to buy your bottle, take your bottle in, order a setup, and mix your own drink. Now, they had some kinky laws here, too. You couldn't even set your bottle straight up and down on the table. If you was going to set your bottle up, you had to set it on the floor. If it was on the table, you had to lay it down. But I thought, boy, these people out in California are class. They got it. They know what they know what it's all about. We didn't stay out there too long. Uh, by this time, I'd had an, we'd had another child, a little girl, and uh, we didn't stay long. Patsy and the and the kids weren't real happy out there. I'd tell Patsy, I know when y'all see me driving up the driveway, you tell the kids, well, here comes Daddy, start crying, telling me you want to go back to Fort Worth. But anyway, we came back to Fort Worth broke, didn't have any money. Moved in with my mother and father-in-law. Uh, it was at Christmas time, and I borrowed money from my father-in-law to buy those kids something for Christmas. <laughs> Three months later, he bought a house across the street, and they moved. 
He said he was going to do that all the time. I, to this day, I don't know whether he was or not. My father-in-law is probably one of the greatest men I ever knew in my life. He knew me my whole drinking career. He knew me when I started drinking and started uh, dating his daughter, and he was the only one of my parents that ever saw me sober. My mother and father both died before I sobered up, and they both died alcoholic-related deaths. My mother-in-law died before I sobered up, and God love her, I don't know if she ever had a drink in her whole life. She had a, a refrigerator one time and, and let, let us use it, and I took it home, put it in the garage, and filled it up with beer. And I told Patsy, if your mother comes out here and see what I did at that refrigerator, she's going to take it back home. She's not going to let me have it. But he knew me my whole drinking career. He was a big German man. And the most he ever told me about my drinking was he'd tell me, Jerry, it seems to me like your drinking sure does cause you a lot of problems. And I would think, Dad, it's my problems that's why I'm drinking. And he was right all the time. But that's all he'd ever tell me about my drinking. You know, I found y'all, and he didn't know more and any more about y'all than I did, and I knew nothing. I knew nothing about Alcoholics Anonymous when I found you. And he was in a nursing home, and I was taking care of some of his business for him, and I'd go by and see him. And I went by there one day, and he asked me, he says, are you still going to those meetings? And I said, yes, sir. And he looked at me, and he said, well, how long are you going to have to go? And I said, well, Dad, I don't know. I said, I know this. I went today, and it seems like my life's better. And a big old grin come across his face, and he says, well, hell, keep on going. <laughs> you know, it made sense to him. If it helped, if it helped, do it. And you know, that's been one of the mainstays in my sobriety, because I go to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. I try to go to a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous every day of my life. I don't. I can't work that in my schedule, but I guarantee you I go to more than 365 a year. So there's sometimes I go to two and three meetings. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. I love y'all. I love being with you. I love being around you. I want to see y'all understand. Uh, I want to be with you. I go to as many meetings as I can, and sometimes I'll be getting ready to to go make a call or getting ready at my office of a morning and we have a meeting at 11 o'clock there at the North 40. In my office today, in but a, a less than a mile and a half from the North 40. And I'll think, well, I don't need to go to that meeting today. I know who's going to be there. I know where they're going to be sitting. I know what they're going to say. Uh, probably any use in me going to that meeting and I'll think of what Dad told me. Well, if it helps, just keep on going, and I'll go. And let me tell you, I've never been yet that it didn't help. Not ever have I not been that it didn't help. Even if I thought, well, I don't know what I learned today, sometimes down the road, someplace, something happens to me, or somebody I love, or something in my life, I get scared, or I get a resentment, and I'll remember what somebody said in that meeting I didn't want to go to, that I thought I didn't need to go to. So I go to a lot of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous simply because I want to go. That's why I go. I'd always wanted to go into business for myself, and like I say, I came back broke, and I didn't have any money. Uh, and this was in 1966, uh, and I, I found a man that wanted to that had been over in Benghazi over in North Africa for 10 years and he had came back to the States and he had some money and he didn't want to go back 
and he wanted to start a business, and I told him what I'd like to do. And, uh, and he said, well, let's do it. So he put the money up, and he and I went into business. We went into the plastics business in 1966. And the reason I talk about this is because I knew that if that business was going to be a success, I couldn't drink like I like to drink. I drank, I drank all day. I drank every day, and I drank like that for a long time. And I knew that I couldn't drink like I like to drink and spend the time I needed to spend making that business a success. So I decided, well, I'm just not going to drink like I like to until this business is successful. And in 1966, I could do that. I didn't stop drinking. I'd drink a beer or I'd have a, a mixed drink or something, but I didn't drink like I like to drink. And I, I had that control at that time. And, and that's what I did. Well... The plastics business uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, in fact, most businesses just took off. I mean, it just took off. I don't care what you were doing back then. If you were doing anything, you were making money. And the plastics business was, was the, the coming thing, and it was booming, and we didn't know any more than anybody else or weren't any smarter. We just happened to be there doing it, and that business took off. And some two to three years later, I decided that I could start drinking like I like to drink, and I did. And from that point on, I had no control over my drinking whatsoever. I truly believe, and I just choose to believe this by listening to y'all, by reading that book, and by taking my inventories, I truly believe that my drinking career up until today has lasted 35 years. I truly believe the first 20 years of my drinking that I wasn't an alcoholic. I also believe and know and have been convinced without, beyond a shadow of a doubt the last 15 years of my drinking, I was an alcoholic. I had no control over it whatsoever. Not when I drank, not what I drank, not where I drank, not what happened to me when I drank. I had no control from that point on. And that's when I started on my trail to y'all, once I lost that control, not knowing that, that that's where I was going, but knowing that at the end, that I had to wind up someplace different than I was. And what happened to me when I reached my bottom is that I had reached every goal that I had ever thought that I could reach in my life. I had done everything that I had ever even dreamed of doing. I didn't have enormous amounts of money, but I had a whole lot more money than this old hog farmer ever thought about having. I had a beautiful home. I had a beautiful wife. I had two beautiful children. I had a thriving business. I had five cars, a tractor, a truck, part-time mule. I borrowed an old mule from this fellow to ride because I wanted to ride in that roundup over in Fort Worth, the Chisholm Trail roundup. And I told the old boy, I said, I want to buy that mule. And he looked at me and he said, you don't have enough money to buy my mule. <laughs> He said, I'll let you, let you keep her as long as you'll take care of her. And thank God I don't have her today. I don't need Bessie. But I had everything I'd ever dreamed of having. All my bills were paid. I could buy anything I wanted. And I mean, I couldn't buy anything, but I could buy anything I wanted. I could go any place I wanted to go. And I was drunk. And I could not be drunk, and I didn't know why. I didn't know why I could not be drunk. Patsy and I were still living together. We lived in the same house. God love her, she never did run. 
she did tell me this when we got married, and, and I kid her about it today, and I, and I love to. She told me when we got married, she said, Jerry, don't you ever think about leaving me, because if you leave, I'm going with you. <laughs> and God love her, I guess that's what she did. I guess that's what she did. But I had no idea what was going on in her life, and she had gotten to a point that she didn't care what was going on in my life anymore. Uh, we just were under the same roof and had no idea. I would lay in my bedroom floor, and I'd think, well, why don't somebody check on me? <laughs> I'd think, the phone must be out of order, and I'd pick the phone up. The phone wasn't out of order. And the reason I was laying in the floor, I'd, I was out one night, and I was talking to this old boy, and I said, you know, I go home, and I'm always drunk, and I, I start out in the bed, but I always wind up falling off in the floor. And he said, well, Jerry, why don't you just sleep on the floor? You can't fall off of it. That's not why I decided to start sleeping in the floor. Why I decided to start sleeping in the floor is because that floor was easier to clean up than that bed was. And nobody was cleaning up after me anymore. I was having to clean up after myself. I knew that I had to do something, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't know anything about alcoholics or Alcoholics Anonymous. If I had ever been called an alcoholic, I, think, I thought somebody thought, well, they must think I can drink more than somebody else. Uh, and I could drink. I could drink. I was just like Don. I could drink. I didn't know what to do. But as I've heard y'all say over and over and over, one Saturday morning, I came to, and I thought, I can't go any further. I can't go on. You see, I had this thriving business, and this first partner had died, and I'd taken on another partner, and the partner I took on worked for a fellow over in Fort Worth whenever he came to work for me. I couldn't afford him, so I gave him part of the business. But the fellow he had been working for, died with over 30 years sober in Alcoholics Anonymous. So the partner I took on knew about Alcoholics Anonymous, and he knew about alcoholics. And I finally got to the point in that business that he told me, he said, Jerry, I know I can't tell you not to come down here, and I can't tell you not to drink, but if you won't come down here drinking, I'll take care of everything. And I thought, boy, this is the ride I've been looking for. Number one, the, the man was... My friend, we used to double date together when we were in high school. He is brilliant. He's a brilliant man. Number three, he's honest. And he did exactly what he said. Incidentally, in case I forget to tell you, that business don't exist anymore. We went broke um, for a lot of reasons. And I'm not taking full blame. Uh, that's another story. <laughs> I will tell you this before I forget it, though. When we, went to, when we shut it down... And we'd been in business 22 years and uh, made a lot of money, and we had to shut that thing down. And I told my sponsor at the time, I said, well, what am I going to tell everybody at, in the business? I said, everybody's going to ask me, Jerry, why'd you shut that business down? And my sponsor said, well, why'd you shut it down? I said, well, I went broke. And he says, well, tell them. And so when they'd ask, I'd say, well, I went broke. And you know the most comment I ever heard from any of them? Oh. <laughs> I never told one of them that that they didn't understand. I never thought about telling them that. You know? <laughs> Not a one. So he had given me a free ticket to go do what he knew I was going to have to do. I was going to have to get my drinking done. 
And I had it done. I just couldn't go any further. I did not care at that particular time in my life what happened to me. I just couldn't go any further. My son uh, that, that I'd mentioned that Mickey asked me about had told me he hated me, wished I was dead, wished I wasn't his father. And God love y'all, it's not like that today. If he was sitting right there when this meeting was over, we would embrace and say, I love you. Every single time we see one another, that's what we say to one another. And see, y'all did that. I didn't know how to be a father, and he didn't know how to be a son. And y'all like gave that to us. And I love you for it. And I blame you for it, too. I love you dearly for it. You gave me a life and a wife that I never had before. I didn't know how to be a husband. Patsy couldn't be a wife to me. I didn't know how to be a husband. And y'all gave that to me. And I love you for it. I didn't know what to do, but I knew I had to do something. I wasn't going to ask Pat to help me because of what he just told me. I wouldn't ask Patsy. I was just too ashamed. I was just too ashamed to ask Patsy. But I knew there was one person that had helped me if I'd ask, and it was my daughter, Spooky. Her nickname, Spooky, her name's Leslie. She was born the day before Halloween, and I've called her Spooky all of her little old life. And... <laughs> And, and she don't mind. She was at the house last night. God love her, she was having some problems last night. And she come over and her and her mama sat and talked till, I don't know, three in the morning, but uh, they have a relationship that's unimaginable. But I knew if anybody had helped me, she would. So I got up that Saturday morning and I made a commitment that I was going to go over and, and talk to her. And I didn't make it. Uh, her husband, my son-in-law, found me over in their neighborhood passed out in my car, and he took me on home with him. And, and I waked up, and I was in, in their bed, and I got up out of bed, and she was in the kitchen. And I walked to the kitchen door and got to a point in my life I could say those three words I thought I never could say. That's, I need help. And I said, Baby, Daddy needs help. And she looked at me as though I wasn't even standing there. She didn't blink her eyes. She didn't twitch, nothing. She simply looked at me and says, Daddy, if I get you help, will you do what I tell you? And I probably told the pure truth for the very first time in my whole life. I said, Baby, I'll do anything you say. And I didn't care what she said. I did not care what I had to do. I just couldn't go on doing what I was doing. I couldn't go any further. Well, God love her, she called Patsy, and they put me in a treatment facility. And I didn't know anything about treatment facilities. I knew this. I waked up, and, and I don't know how long I'd been there, but I smelled bacon frying, and I was starved to death. And the old boy walked down the hall, and I said, where are they cooking that bacon? And he says, put your robe on, and I'll show you. And that started my journey toward y'all. Because while I was there, I did everything I was told to do, they started talking about Alcoholics and Alcoholics Anonymous. They took us to AA meetings, and I didn't like it. I didn't like going to AA meetings. I thought y'all were the thinnest group of people I'd ever been exposed to in my life. <laughs> I said, man, if this is it, I've been hooked and hooked deep. This ain't going to work. <laughs> but they started talking about what an alcoholic was, and I got interested because they were telling me what I was. Uh, I was, in fact, I was glad. I was glad somebody knew what was wrong. I had no denial whatsoever about what they were telling me about being an alcoholic. I just no denial at all. 
I think the best story I ever heard in AA about denial was these two old boys were drinking buddies. And they were out drinking one night, and one of them looked at the other one and said, you know, I think you got a drinking problem. Of course, the other one took offense, and he said, well, what makes you think i got a drinking problem? He said, well, every time we go out, it seems like you just sit there and drink until you get drunk and then fall off that stool backwards and lay in the floor. And the other one thought a minute, and he says, well, now, I don't know whether that means i got a drinking problem or not. He said, that could just very well mean I know when to stop. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> that's denial. That's denial. I didn't, I didn't have any denial whatsoever. I did everything they told me to do, and they, they finally got to the point after I'd been there some 28 days or so. They said, it's time for you to go home. But there's, there's some things that you need to do if you don't want to drink. And they said, number one, you need to go to AA. And I thought, gosh, I don't want to go to AA. Why didn't they tell me to go to Europe or take a cruise or something? I said, I don't want to go to AA. And then they said, and if you're serious, you, need, you should go every day for the next 90 days. And I thought, oh, well, they won't let me come every day. <laughs> and then they told me something I almost missed. They said, and if you're really serious, you need to find you a sponsor. And sent me home. So I said, well, I said I was going to do what I was supposed to do, so I'm going to do it. So the first night I was at home out of that facility, I told Patsy, baby, we're going to an AA meeting. Wasn't going by myself. (laughs) I wasn't going to expose myself to y'all alone, I'll tell you that. Well, God love her, she said, okay. And we went to an AA meeting, and it was a group over there in Fort Worth called the Mid-Cities Group. And they were meeting on, at a place then called Billy Ruth, they, on Billy Ruth Street. They don't meet there now. But I'd been to enough meetings uh, in that treatment facility that when they opened the meeting, I realized we were in a closed meeting. And I told Patsy, I said, honey, we're in a closed meeting. And she says, well, should we leave? And I said, no, but listen, if they call on you, you say, my name's Patsy. I'm an alcoholic, and I pass, and they won't say nothing. (laughs) They didn't call on either one of us, but that was my first freelance meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I found a little group over there close to our place of business called the North Forty Group. And at that time, they were meeting in a little abandoned rock motel room. And it was small. It was a little small they had an 11 o'clock meeting, and that suited me fine because I could go down there at 11 and get back to my place of business and go eat with, with all of my business associates. And you couldn't park in front of the building. You had to park over in another area, so I wasn't going to be conspicuous. Nobody was going to see my car. And there never was but four or five people at that meeting. And I thought, well, this is where I'm going to make those 90 meetings. This is going to be a lead pipe cinch. So I started going there, and I started going every day. And there was a lady there named Sam. And I don't know if Sam said this every day or not, but it seems like I heard this every day. She would say, if you don't drink, go to meetings and read the big book, your life will get better. And I'd think, boy, I bet. And she kept saying that. And one day she said it, and I thought, well, wait a minute. I'm going to meetings. I've got a big book. They gave me a big book when I was in that treatment facility. (laughs) I didn't know what it was. They told us we were going to have big book study, and I called Patsy and told her to bring my Bible. God love her, she brought it. Uh, my roommate saved my life. He said, Jerry, that isn't what they're talking about. What they're talking about is on your nightstand. I'd never picked it up. So I said, I got a big book. 
and I'm not drinking, so what I'll start doing is reading that big book. And I started reading it. I don't have any idea what I read. I don't even know what part of it I was reading in, but I was reading that big book. And one day I was sitting in one of those meetings, and Sam says, if you don't drink, go to meetings and read the big book, your life will get better. And I felt something inside that I had never felt in my life. Not ever. I felt okay. I just felt okay. And the instant that happened, the thought ran, they told you to get a sponsor. (laughs) My next thought was, man, I don't need a sponsor. I'm already in. You know, I thought you need. I didn't know what a sponsor was. I thought you needed a sponsor to get you in someplace, a lodge or a country club or something. I didn't know what to do. So when they'd call on me at a meeting, and let me tell you, if there's not before five people at a meeting and it lasts an hour, you get called on whether you have anything to say or not. So they'd call on me, and I'd say, "My name's Jerry, and I'm an alcoholic, and I'm looking for a sponsor." And they'd laugh and go on about the meeting. <laughs> But let me tell you, I found a sponsor. His name was Don C. And the reason I decided to ask him to be my sponsor, and there's a lot of other more valid reasons in this, but this is the reason I asked Don, was because he had more sobriety than any other man in that group. He had seven years. And I thought that was an eternity. And I asked him if he'd be my sponsor. And I don't know whether he ever told me whether he would or not. He did that like he did everything else in his life. He just started being my sponsor. That's all he did. He asked me to do the things I mentioned earlier. He said, I want you to pray every day and every morning, and I want you to thank God every night. And I started doing that. And after I was doing that for a while, I saw Don at a meeting, and I said, Don, do you think I ought to be on my knees praying when I'm doing this prayer you told me to pray and he says oh I don't know Jerry is it bothering you and I said well sure it's bothering me if it wasn't bothering me I wouldn't be talking to you about it he said well why don't you try doing it and see if it helps any so I said well that's what I'll do so I'd get down on my knees at night and start praying and I'd hear Patsy coming and I'd get up (laughs) I didn't mind doing it but I didn't want to be caught doing it (laughs) I finally got used to her being in the room, and I'd just stay on my knees. I thought, well, I'm not getting up. I'm staying. And I'd finish my prayer and get in bed, and she wouldn't say nothing. I saw Don a little bit later on after that, and I said, you know, Don, I kind of like getting on my knees and doing that. But I said, uh, but I think Patsy ought to be doing it too. <laughs> and he looked at me and grinned or smirked, which I don't know, and he said, Jerry, you leave Patsy alone. <laughs> And I was doing what I was told, so I did. I left Patsy alone. But do you know what happened? I kept doing what I was supposed to do. I kept kneeling down there and praying with Patsy in the room. And one night I waked, I raised up, and there Patsy was praying with me. That's the way it's been ever since. All I had to do was what I was supposed to do. I couldn't play Patsy's role. I just had to play my role. I came in from an AA meeting one night, and Les, uh, A, our little granddaughter, Adrian, who was spending the night with us, God love her, she's 16 now, and she has over a year in the program. But she was real young then, and she was spending the night with us, and uh, I come in, got ready to go to bed, and I knelt down to say my prayers, and uh, she said, Now, what's Granddaddy doing? And Patsy said, Honey, Granddaddy's saying his prayers. And I got through, and I got up and got in bed, and 
A looked over at me and she says, Granddaddy, you didn't say your prayers. And I said, yeah, baby. I says, Granddaddy says his prayers to himself. She looked at me and she says, Granddaddy, I say my prayers to God. And, and I, I thought, boy, she don't think she's got an old screwed up granddaddy. I said, baby, what I mean is I say, I don't say my prayers out loud. You know, there's been some beautiful things happen to me in AA by doing the things y'all have told me to do. I pray prayers today, and most of my prayers, in fact, all of my prayers are prayers that y'all have taught me. They're the only prayers I know that aren't selfish. And I've never had an occasion in my life that one of y'all's prayers didn't fit the occasion. So I just pray the prayers y'all have taught me. Uh, I was at home one morning here about two years ago, and... And I was fixing to call on a customer, a customer that's a real big, one of my biggest customers. And, and I say that by the amount of monetary assistance that he gives to me. I just, right now, I'm a, a salesman. I'm just, I, I'm a rep. I'm a manufacturer's rep. I just work for some other people. I'm just an old peddler. But I had a, a, an appointment with him, and, and I'd been having some problems with one of the engineers. And we were going to have a meeting, and that engineer was going to be there. And I was up that morning praying and meditating, and fear came over me. I got in some fear. Well, I know what to do. Y'all told me what to do when I'm in fear. I need to ask God at once, remove this fear. And then it tells me I need to tell someone immediately. And I thought, well, there's nobody here but Patsy. And I don't know whether I want to tell Patsy whether I'm, that I'm scared. I don't know whether I want to tell her whether I'm in fear or not. And I thought, well, there's nobody else here. So I walked in the bedroom where she was, and I said, I want to share something with you. And God love her, she's got a program that makes mine look puny. She practices these 12 steps in a natural way. She's, uh, she's been in Al-Anon ever since I've been in AA. And she, she puts, applies these principles in her life in a way I, I don't think I'll ever be able to. But anyway, she said, well, what's going on? And I said, well, I'm in some fear about going to this meeting. And I've asked God to remove it, and, and I know I'm supposed to tell somebody, so I want to tell you that, that, that I'm in fear about that. I'm afraid. And I said, I want to know if you'll kneel down here and say the third step prayer with me. And she said, well, sure. And we said the third step prayer. And I left, and I went to that meeting, and, and it, it wasn't all uh, roses and, and sweet music, but I wasn't in fear, and, and everything worked out okay. Not exactly like I wanted, but everything was okay, and and I wasn't in that fear. That isn't what was important about me doing that. What was important about me doing that is the next morning I got ready to leave, and Patsy asked me, when I went in to kiss her goodbye, she asked me, aren't we going to do the third step prayer? And I said, well, sure. That's the way I leave the house every single morning. You see, I was just doing what I was supposed to do, following your direction, doing what y'all told me to do to make my life right. I'm the only, I, my role is the only role I can play. I can't play y'all's role. I can only play my role. And you know, I don't know whether me kneeling when I pray of a morning like that, if God hears me any quicker or anything different happens. I do know this. I've re removed one more variable out of my life. I don't have to worry about whether I ought to be doing it or not. And I like something a lady shared in AA one time about kneeling and praying. And she simply said that she liked to kneel because... It put her in a neutral position. She couldn't be offensive or she couldn't be defensive. She could only be receptive. 
and I like that. So there's certain times of the day I pray, riding, driving, standing. There's other days, times of the days that I kneel just because I feel comfortable doing that. This sponsor and I took these 12 steps, 1 through 12, as they're listed here on the wall and as they're described in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And what happened to me is exactly what happens to people that do that. As a result of taking those steps, I had a spiritual awakening. I found God. And that's the message that I have to carry in Alcoholics Anonymous. I took these steps and I found God. That's the message. The hard part's practicing these principles in all my affairs. And I do better at that today than I used to, a whole lot better. And I'm more mindful. And the reason I do better than I used to is because I've been willing to try applying these principles in my life, and my life has gotten better, and so I know that I can benefit if I'm willing to do that. One of the greatest things that's happened to me since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous is my marriage to Patsy. And what happened is when I took these steps and I decided that I need to, I need to do something to contribute to this relationship, and I did what the book said. I, asked, I invited God into it, and I asked God to give me some direction about what can I do for this relationship. When, when I sobered up and I got in AA, our relationship wasn't back to, to anything that, that you'd ring bells and blow horns about. But we were still together, and that's about what it was. But I wanted that relationship, and I wanted to, to know what can I do and I asked God for inspiration and intuitive thought or a decision. And the thought that came to me from wherever, and I choose to think it came from God, and I can do that. Y'all will allow me to do that if I choose to. Is that, Jerry, why don't you just not do anything on a daily basis that you can't come home and tell Patsy you did? And I thought, well, I'm going to try that. And I started trying that. And that relationship started to bloom in a way that you can't imagine. And I would think about doing things I shouldn't be doing or I wasn't supposed to do or maybe I just didn't want her to know. And I think, well, I can't tell her. I'm not going to do it. And today, our relationship is unimaginable. I never dreamed that I would have a relationship with a woman, much less my wife that the relationship that we have. And all I had to do, all I have to do is what I'm supposed to do. And, you know, that's the hardest lesson that I've had to learn in AA. You see, I'd rather tell you what to do because I don't suffer any consequences when you do it. But all I can do is what I'm supposed to do. And I still have a hard time with that sometimes with my customers. You know, I want to make an unreasonable demand instead of a simple request. And y'all have taught me how to make simple requests. And when I do, well, I'm fine. And when I don't, I have problems. But y'all have given me the direction and things have happened in my life because of y'all, and I blame you for it, that I never dreamed it could have happened. I never dreamed it could have happened. This first sponsor I di had died, and, and that's another story within itself. And his dying was one of the most beautiful things that, that I've ever witnessed. I went to his hospital room, and I didn't even know he was sick, and he told me he was going to have to have surgery. And uh, there was about a 30% a chance that it was going to be successful, that he'd make it. And he loved AA, and he did a lot of 12-step work in AA, and he was willing to, to take that chance because if he didn't, he wasn't going to be able to continue to do that. 
And I immediately looked at him and I said, well, Don, do you realize that you're telling me there's a 70% chance you're going to die? And he said, yes, I know that. And he says, and that's okay with me, Jerry. And if it's okay with me, it's going to be okay with you. Do you know what my next question was? Don, if you die, what's going to happen to me? That's exactly what I was thinking. And he grinned or smirked. <laughs> and he said, Jerry, the same thing is going to happen to you if I don't die. You've t- we've taken these steps. You've got the direction for your life. I could not believe that I was sitting there talking to a man that was probably going to die, and I detected no fear in him whatsoever. None. God loved him. He had that surgery, and he died, and it was okay. The only thing that I didn't like is there wasn't that person in my life anymore that knew everything there was to know about me. I'd lost a freedom that I'd never dreamed of having. So consequently, I set out and found another sponsor that knows everything there is about me. There's a lot of people in AA that knows everything there is about me because, you see, God has allowed me not to do any one thing in a day's time that I can't go home and tell Patsy. And that's freed my life up to an extent that's un- unbelievable. And all i got to do is what I'm supposed to do. Y'all will never know how much I love you for making me feel like I felt when I walked in or allowing me to feel that way. It's one of the nicest feelings I've had since I've been in Alcoholics Anonymous. And my wish is that if any or all of y'all come to the North 40 group in Fort Worth, Texas, that you'll feel the same way. Thank you.